Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. On the 14th of December, 1942, as Lieutenant Colonel Ralph Honor was preparing his final assault at Hattie's Village, bringing the Gona fight to a final conclusion, the American 32nd Division, in front of Buna, had gone to ground and were making no further effort to advance. With Buna in Japanese hands and San Ananda still eluding the Allied forces, no further progress could be made elsewhere in the theatre. These positions had to be cracked, but three Australian brigades had been worn out after halting the Japanese advance across the Owen Stanleys, pushing them back, and then by weeks of bloody fighting around Gona. The only fresh brigade which Blamey had at his disposal was Brigadier Wooten's 18th Brigade. But where to use them? Should they take over from the Americans at Buna, or should they go to San Ananda, where the Japanese were still holding a combined Australian and US force? The wrong choice could potentially set back the Allied war effort by months. Welcome to the Australian Military History Podcast, a podcast dedicated to Australian servicemen and women covering events, units and personalities from the Boer War through to the modern day. G'day everyone, and welcome back to this third and final episode on the Battle of Buna, Gona and San Ananda. The situation in this fight for the beachheads of northern New Guinea was delicately balanced. Of the three main Japanese positions, after weeks of bloody fighting, only Gona had been captured. General Blamey wrote to Lieutenant General Northcott, Chief of the General Staff, in the first weeks of December and summed it all up. We are now suffering the very common lot of armies who have advanced beyond the region of capacity for supply and as a result are being held up by limited Japanese forces which are jammed in narrow areas on the northeastern coast. Except at San Ananda, the Jap front is not more than half a mile from the coast anywhere, but he is covered in on his front by the filthiest country imaginable and by extraordinarily strong defences. The bulk of our supply has to be taken in by aeroplane and landed on landing grounds that are not very good and sometimes are out of action on account of weather conditions. And while we have air superiority, we are unable to utilise it to the full on the other side of the range because as yet we cannot get strips strong enough to take fighter aircraft. The consequences are that as soon as our own protective umbrella returns, news is flashed from Buna to Ley, and the enemy comes out on strafing and bombing expeditions. We are unable to develop superior firepower because of the difficulty in getting guns across and maintaining the ammunition supply up to them. End quote. Blamey was also getting more and more concerned about the state of the Australian forces in the area. He wrote to the Prime Minister, John Curtin, requesting that the 9th Division, currently fighting in the Middle East, be returned to him for use in the Pacific Theatre. Another reason for his request was his rapidly diminishing opinion of the American troops. In his letter to Curtin, Blamey wrote, It has revealed the fact that the American troops cannot be classified as attack troops. They are definitely not equal to the Australian militia. From the moment they met opposition, sat down and have hardly gone forward a yard. I'm afraid now that the bulk of the fighting will fall on our troops, in spite of the greatly larger numbers of the 32nd Division. The brigades that went over the mountain track are now so depleted that they are being withdrawn and I am utilising the only remaining AIF brigade in Port Moresby and a brigade of militia. I feel quite sure in my own mind that the American forces, which have expanded even more rapidly than our own were in the first years of the war, will not attain any high standard of training or war spirit 
for many months to come. If the 9th Australian Division is not returned, I fear very greatly that we will have to sit down for a very long time in this area in an endeavour to defend it, mainly by keeping the jet flotillas away by air action. End quote. So in short, the Americans are not up to the task, and of the 7th Division Brigades, only one, plus a militia brigade, are in any state to be thrown in to take over. The 9th Division would have to be returned to Australia and made available to Blamey if the advance was to go any further than the beachheads. But the 9th Division had only just been involved in the Second Battle of Alamein a month before and had suffered heavy casualties. It would take months to get them back to Australia, recuperated and retrained for jungle fighting before they could even be considered for service in New Guinea. It was all going to have to be done by Brigadier Wooten's 18th Brigade and the 7th Brigade of Militia. But to add to Blamey's problems, he also had to account for the possibility of a Japanese attempt to stage another seaborne assault in southeastern New Guinea and some of the surrounding islands. In the end, he ordered Wooten to get his brigade to Buna. That was all well and good on paper, but at the time, Wooten only had one battalion at Milne Bay, the 2nd-9th. His other two battalions, the 2nd-12th and the 2nd-10th, were garrisoning Goodenough Island and Porlock Harbour. Blamey had wanted to land the 2nd-9th on the beach immediately to the east of Buna, coordinated with an inland thrust by American infantry and tanks, but the Navy wouldn't come to the party, and so that plan was mercifully abandoned. He ordered Wooten to take the 2nd 9th to Buna along with a battalion from the 7th Brigade and two troops of tanks from the 2nd 6th Armoured Regiment. Wooten said he would rather another battalion from his own brigade rather than alone from the 7th Brigade and so a rapid relief of the 2nd 10th was undertaken with a militia unit taking over from them at Porlock Harbour. Wooten flew to the Buna front ahead of his brigade and hashed out the details of their deployment with the top dogs in the area including the newly arrived US commander Eichelberger. It was decided that upon their arrival they would take over the area held by Warren Force and would take charge of the American forces already in the area. His goal was to clear the Japanese from the area ranging from Cape Endadea, New Strip, Old Strip and Boona Government Station. As usual, there is a map on the website should you feel the need to orient yourself. The 2nd 6th Armoured Regiment, using American Stuart tanks, were men who had been specifically chosen for the regiment. They had initially been intended to face the Germans and Italians in North Africa and so they were given a nice patch of Western Plains, New South Wales, in which to conduct their training. This would have been great if they had ever made it to North Africa. But it wasn't great training for the muddy, tight jungle terrain in which they were about to find themselves. Wooden assumed command of the area at 9am on the 17th of December. He had on hand 26 officers and 638 men of the 2nd 9th, a squadron of the 2nd 6th Armoured, and other supporting units. The 2nd 10th were preparing to embark on transport ships the following day. The first phase of his plan would involve taking the area from New Strip in the southeast and pushing on towards Sememi Creek. This would take in Cape Endadir, New Strip and Old Strip. The advance was to commence on the following day. The seven tanks which were to support the attack moved into position at dusk on the 17th. There was supposed to be an air raid put down to drown out the noise of the tanks, but the planes didn't appear, so there was quite a bit of concern that any hope of surprise had been lost. Regardless, the attack was going in as planned. Throughout the night, the men of the 2nd and 9th moved to their assembly areas and in the early morning moved to the start line, with the Americans moving aside to allow them in. Poor weather prevented any air support for the attack, but at 6.50am the guns opened up on the Japanese positions. At 7am the Australians crossed the start line. General Eichelberger was on hand to watch this advance and he wrote, It was a spectacular and dramatic assault and a brave one. From the new strip to the sea was about half a mile. American troops wheeled to the west in support and other Americans were assigned to mopping up duties. 
But behind the tanks went the fresh and jaunty Aussie veterans, tall, moustached, erect, and with their blazing Tommy guns swinging before them. Concealed Japanese positions, which were even more formidable than our patrols had indicated, burst into flames. There was the greasy smell of tracer fire, and heavy machine gun fire from brigades and entrenchments. Steadily, tanks and infantrymen advanced through the spare high coconut trees, seemingly impervious to the heavy opposition. End quote. They may have seemed impervious to the general in his relatively safe position, but the blokes on the pointy end probably didn't feel the same way. Anyway, on the right flank, the advance went pretty smoothly. Lieutenant McIntosh led the right-hand platoon forward with a tank in support, driven by Corporal Barnett. The two men had actually gone for a bit of a recce during the night and had identified a strongly built post, so when they headed off in the morning, they knew exactly where to go and what to do. Barnett drove his tank directly at one post and blasted the opening, and McIntosh's men then charged forward and finished off the defenders. They were then fired upon by another post which McIntosh and Barnett hadn't seen the previous night. They were using a Bren gun, which they had obviously pilfered from the dead of a previous attack. Corporal Thomas rushed forward to silence the post. On his way, a Japanese grenade exploded pretty much in front of his face, which did little more than make Thomas even angrier and more fearsome looking as blood streamed down his face. Reaching the post, he grabbed the protruding barrel of the Bren gun, wrenched it out of the bunker and turned it on the occupants, and thus the post was silenced. Thomas fought on for a further two days before McIntosh basically ordered him to head back and get his wounds treated. Other parts of the attack didn't go so easily. Just inland from McIntosh's platoon, Lieutenant Sevier's platoon were fighting their way through the kunai grass. When they were about 200 yards short of being in line with McIntosh, a strong Japanese position with numerous interconnected bunkers opened up. The guns took a heavy toll. Sevier was killed almost immediately, his platoon sergeant was wounded, and Sergeant Walters, who came forward to take command, was also killed. Command then fell to the section corporals. On the left flank, around the new strip, Captain Parbury's company was being cut to pieces by intense light and medium machine gun fire. Even before crossing the start line, they had suffered casualties. They advanced without tank support, and within 10 minutes, 46 out of the 87 men who crossed the line had been lost, with only 100 yards gained. Parbury ordered his men to go to ground while he contacted Lieutenant Colonel Cummings. Cummings suggested that Parbury might be able to get a small infiltration force forward, where a larger force couldn't go. Parbury called up Lance Sergeant Morey and his reserve platoon to act as the infiltration force. Morey and his entire platoon was killed before they had gone 20 yards. Parbury had little choice but to lay low and wait until tanks could come to his aid. But what were those tanks doing? Well, they were as busy as a one-armed piano player in other areas of the attack. Captain Whitehead, in charge of a squadron of tanks, planned to hold his own tank back a little so that he could command and coordinate the squadron and direct them where they could be of most use. But remember, these blokes had been training on the plains of New South Wales for desert conditions. Whitehead's plan would have worked in those conditions, but in among the jungle, coconut plantations and kunai grass, he very quickly realised that this level of control was impossible. He gave his individual tank commanders freedom to act as they saw fit. He himself got into it as quickly as possible. Shortly after leaving the start line, he spotted a sniper high in a palm tree. He called to his gunner, Trooper Bray, to shoot him, but Bray couldn't elevate the turret high enough. Whitehead then ordered him to shoot down the tree. Bray's first shot grazed the tree, but his second hit it dead on and the tree, with the sniper high up, came crashing down. Then, just to make sure, Bray scoured the fallen tree with fire from his burning automatic rifle. It was about half an hour later that Whitehead received word of Parbury's predicament. He followed the messenger back to Parbury's position and located three strong points. He engaged the first of these with five shots from the turret, which silenced the crew. But as he turned to engage the others, 
a lone Japanese soldier jumped onto the tank, unseen, and fired through the viewing slit which Whitehead was looking through. The shattered bullet and slivers of steel from the viewing slit gouged Whitehead's face, blinding one eye and knocking him back. The Japanese didn't get the opportunity to fire a second shot as the surrounding Australian infantry soon took care of him. But Whitehead was out of action. Bray turned the tank for home after taking on some of the Australian wounded. Whitehead was taken out of the tank and Hodgson, commander of the regiment, jumped in and Bray drove the tank back into the fight. Unfortunately though, Hodgson, for whatever reason, decided to ride with his head poking up above the turret, attempting target for a Japanese sniper, and shortly after entering the battlefield, he was shot through the head. By 10am, both of the senior tank officers were out of the fight. In another area, one tank became stuck and the Japanese troops were attempting to set fire to the vegetation around it with the intention of cooking the crew inside. A fellow tanky saw what was going on and ordered his gunner to fire close enough to the tank to take the paint off. The gunner's accuracy was impressive, killing the Japanese on the ground but inflicting no further damage on the stranded tank. This tank and its crew were later recovered. Only two tanks were lost that day. One commanded by Captain Taylor ran onto a stump and couldn't be moved. The crew got out and later on the Japanese torched it. Later in the day, another tank was seen driving towards the rear at top speed with flames and smoke pouring from it after a magnetic mine had been blown against it. The crew, rather than jumping out where they were to be subjected to enemy fire, were making all haste back to safety before abandoning the vehicle. Anyway, before that tank roaded diversion, we were talking about Parbury and his platoon waiting patiently for a bit of assistance. At about 1pm, Lieutenant Colonel Curtis arrived with two other tanks. Parbury pointed out the Japanese position to the tank commanders and a rough plan was formed. The infantry would advance alongside the tanks and Warrant Officer Jesse would mark the Japanese defenders by firing a very light into them, which the tankies would follow up with a round from their turret. At 2pm, they put the plan into action. With Jesse firing flares left, right and centre, the three tanks banging rounds in after them and the infantry blazing away as they walked forward, the Japanese couldn't take any more. Some leapt out of their bunkers, attempting to run away, but they were mown down in a hail of fire. Others remained in their holes, only to be destroyed by the tanks or from the infantry throwing grenades. Within half an hour, 11 of the bunkers had been taken, and before long, the defenders in the remaining five packed up and ran. The Americans came in behind and mopped up any further Japanese resistance. By the end of the first day, the Australians had formed a line from the coast west of Cape Enderdeer to the east end of New Strip. The right flank had advanced 400 yards, but the day's fighting had cost the 2nd 9th 11 officers and 160 other ranks. The 19th was spent cleaning up and securing their gains of the 18th, but on the 20th, Wooden ordered his men to push on. The fighting over the next few days was pretty much as it had been on the 18th, with one major exception. The further the men pushed on, the worse the ground became, and soon it was too saturated for the tanks to operate, two of them becoming hopelessly bogged and had to be abandoned. The infantry would advance with only the artillery for support, but by the 21st they had advanced the line as far as Sememi Creek. Crossing the Sememi would be a difficult task. The Japanese had been in the area for quite a few months, so they obviously knew all the suitable crossing places. One was the mouth of the river, which was known to be shallow, and the other was a bridge, which the Americans had attempted to seize on a number of occasions, but had been repulsed. The mouth of the creek was still in Japanese hands. On the 21st of December, Wooten's 2nd Battalion, the 2nd 10th, under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Dodds, arrived and were ordered to find a crossing place. Major Clarkson suggested it would be possible to cross where the river formed a U-bend and Captain Sanderson's company was sent to examine the area over the night of the 21st and 22nd. But when Lieutenant Colonel Dobbs questioned him the next morning, 
he reported that his men had found no crossing point. Dobbs said to Sanderson, You know what to do when your platoon commanders can't manage the job. He turned and left. Sanderson took that to mean that if the platoon commanders couldn't do it, then Sanderson himself would have to do it. Sanderson headed to the creek, and with two brain guns covering him, he waded and sometimes swam across the creek. He must have been somewhat relieved when he emerged on the other side, unshot by any Japanese in the area. He came out on flat dry ground, surrounded by kunai grass. He only saw two Japanese soldiers fleeing from the area. But he signalled for a platoon to follow him across, and before long, the remainder of the company came across. By dawn of the 23rd, Dobbs had three companies securely on the other side of the creek. While the 2nd 10th was sorting out the creek crossing, the 2nd 9th was ordered to seize an area of land to the north of Old Strip, known as Strip Point. This movement commenced at 7.30 on the morning of the 22nd. Advancing slowly, they made some progress until about 9am when they came upon strong Japanese defences. While engaging these positions, shells began falling among the headquarters perimeter and inflicted heavy casualties among the mortars and Vicar machine gun crews which were supporting the attack. Then, to add to the problems, the two tanks which were supporting the advance needed to pull back to refuel and rearm. The infantry had little choice but to draw back a short distance and wait for the return of the tanks. But even with their return, the fight was brutal. One company lost all of their officers and it was up to Sergeant McCready to take over while Warrant Officer Jesse took command of a composite company. Eventually, Major Perry Ockerden arrived to take command of the three companies and with their one remaining tank in support, they drove forward against the pillboxes and managed to break through to the mouth of the Sememi Creek. It had taken six days for the first phase of Wooten's plan to be achieved, but finally a beachhead had been secured on the southern bank of the creek at the end of Old Strip and all the land north of the creek had been taken. Now it was time for phase two. The second phase commenced on the 23rd of December with the intention to swing to the left from the 2nd 10th beachhead and seize the bridge which the Americans had been trying to capture almost since this Boona campaign had begun. The taking of the bridge actually turned out to be considerably easier than Wooten or anybody else had thought. The Japanese were taken completely by surprise, apparently thinking that the bridge was the only possible crossing point. So when they saw Australian troops coming from a completely unexpected direction, their usual tenacity in defence failed them and they fled without a fight. The American engineers quickly got to work on repairing the bridge and by nightfall it was able to take infantry and armoured traffic. The 2nd 10th had one company 400 yards along the right of this strip another 200 yards up the centre, and the third basically still at the crossing point. On the 24th, the combined Australian-American force pushed west along the line of the old strip, supported by four tanks. Things were going fairly well until the leading tank commander noticed a flash of fire off to his right. Then a shell hit the side of his tank, destroying the steering mechanism, and the tank rolled into a crater. The commander attempted to radio to the other tanks to fall back, but his radio had been damaged, and so as the other tanks came forward, they were knocked out, one by one. The infantry was now on their own. Despite this, they managed to forge ahead another 500 to 700 yards. The following day was Christmas Day, although I dare say most of the men in the field that day probably didn't care. The war wasn't going to stop for Christmas. The advance recommenced in the morning but met heavy resistance. It wasn't until just before noon that they managed to penetrate the defences with Private Hughes, an Aboriginal soldier, being prominent shooting and grenading his way forward and forcing the Japanese out of their defences. And so it went on for the next couple of days. A morning advance, which usually met opposition, overcoming that opposition and moving on until more resistance was encountered, dealing with that and then digging in for the night. But by the 28th, the Japanese had been forced into a small strip of land from Sememi Creek to Garopa Creek, an area of about half a mile. 
An attempt to shift the last of the Japanese from the area was made, and although Sergeant Mitchell's men had successfully gained their objective, with other platoons in strong supporting positions, some newly arrived tank crews mistook Mitchell's platoon for enemy and opened fire. According to witnesses, the tanks practically wiped out the platoon and then began firing on another. Private Evans charged across the open ground with the tank's shells bursting all around him and leapt up onto the leading tank, banging on the hatch to get the crew's attention. But they didn't hear him and they kept firing. Eventually, a green flare was fired, which was the signal to withdraw. Only three out of the 13 men who formed Mitchell's platoon returned. The second tenth was just about spent by this stage. On the 29th, Wooden ordered them to hold their positions south of the Samemi, while the 2nd 9th held positions north of the creek to the coast. The 18th Brigade's 3rd Battalion, the 2nd 12th, had arrived under Colonel Arnold, and the capture of Garopa Point would fall to them. Pushing towards the coast from the south, two companies would swing south, pushing any Japanese defenders back towards the 2nd 10th. A third company would continue towards the coast and then also turn left and force any coastal defenders onto the waiting rifles and machine guns of the 2nd 9th. The Australians were supported by six tanks. Troops of the American 129th Regiment would go in on the Australians' left flank and push the Japanese back to Garopa Creek. The attack was made on New Year's Day 1943. The tanks actually made themselves useful, with careful coordination by their commander. The tanks moved forward and dealt with the screening Japanese force in basic weapons pits before targeting the strong points. Blasting the openings of the bunkers, they opened the way for the infantry to charge forward and hurl explosive charges through the breach. But that doesn't mean the fighting was easy. The defenders still fought with all the tenacity and fanaticism the Allies had come to expect. The fighting was hard, with some Japanese positions only being cleared after savage hand-to-hand fighting. The 2nd 12th was only involved in the fighting at Garopa Point for two days, but in that time they lost 12 officers and 179 other ranks. In total, the 18th Brigade had lost 55 officers and 808 men since it first arrived in the area in mid-December. But although the Allies had taken a significant chunk of real estate from the Japanese, they still needed to crack one last nut in this area, the Buna Government Station. But that was an exclusively American operation, so I'll only give a brief rundown of how that went. Urbana Force, which had been in the area since the opening of the campaign, was tasked with taking Buna Government Station at the same time that the 18th Brigade were doing their thing during late December. Buna Village, to the west of the station, had been taken on the 14th of December so all that was left was to swing right and to take the last remaining Japanese position. It sounds simple enough, but the more the Japanese were squeezed into a smaller and smaller perimeter, the harder they fought. Attacks were made on the 18th, 19th and 20th of December, but each was held off with heavy losses. On the night of the 21st, the 127th Battalion crossed Entrance Creek by boat and established a strong beachhead, allowing the engineers to build a bridge and five companies crossed on the 24th of December. Later in the day, Advancing in companies, the Americans pushed further. The right and centre attacks were halted, but one platoon on the left managed to push through to the beach. Unfortunately, they were alone, and when they were fired on by their own troops, they pulled back. Another effort was made on the 25th, and although they were again stopped, they managed to dig in and form a perimeter about three to 500 yards around the station. They spent the following days consolidating their gains before trying to push further. On the 28th, an attempt was made to force a bridgehead from Masita Island. The 128th Battalion were crossing the creek in assault boats when their artillery cover lifted, leaving the boats exposed. The Japanese didn't waste the opportunity, and that assault also failed. The Japanese pulled back from their more advanced positions on the 29th, and another push was made on the 31st, but again, the inexperience of the Americans as they advanced on the coast 
led them to go to ground when met with fire, and one of the companies broke and ran in the opposite direction. It was only the timely intervention of the regimental commander that persuaded the troops to turn back towards the enemy. But the Japanese couldn't hold out forever. The Australians were pushing in from the east and the Americans were snatching bits and pieces of ground. Another attack was made on the 1st of January and on the 2nd the bulk of the remaining Japanese forces attempted to break out. By mid-afternoon the two arms of the American attack met up at Government Station and late in the afternoon they linked up with the Australian advance. Buna had finally fallen. Now with Buna and Gona taken care of and Australian and American units spread out and intermixed across the entire battle area a bit of reorganisation was required before any attempt could be made to take out the last bastion of Japanese resistance at San Ananda. From the newly acquired position of Buna, the American 32nd Division was to push along the coast from the east. The Australian 18th Brigade was to move up and join the rest of the 7th Division on the San Ananda track, while the 21st Brigade and 39th Battalion, which had been at Gona, also moved to the San Ananda track. The 39th took over from the Americans who had been holding Huggins Roadblock. Those Americans, as well as the other detachments of the 126th Infantry Regiment who had been attached to the Australians, were returned to their own division. Then, on the night of the 2nd and 3rd of January, a further American regiment arrived and the battered and bruised men of the 21st Brigade were withdrawn to Port Moresby. The 18th Brigade moved into positions held by the 39th and 49th Battalions in preparation for an attack on the 12th of January. This attack involved the 2nd, 9th and 2nd, 12th Battalions, each receiving a company from the 2nd, 10th, to bolster their numbers. They were supported by three tanks, but the tight conditions meant the tanks were unable to manoeuvre effectively, and soon all three fell victim to well-concealed Japanese posts. The attack was halted, particularly on the 2nd 12th Battalion's front. But reading the writing on the wall, the Japanese abandoned their forward positions, leaving the way open to Cape Killerton. They also abandoned their positions south of Huggins Roadblock. Meanwhile, the American advance along the coast from Buna proceeded slowly and was forced to a halt mostly by the terrain and tides, until the 15th of January. From there, they pushed forward and by the 19th of January had secured Tarakina Point, to the east of San Ananda village. On the 15th, the Australians began their push to the coast, with the 2nd 10th Battalion taking the lead. It was tough going as they pushed through heavy swamp, but they reached Cape Killerton on the following day, while a company of the battalion, taking a different track, reached Y Point at about the same time. Major Trevevian recalled the advance to Cape Killerton. Next morning, we pushed on through the bloody mangrove swamps. It was the hardest job I ever had in the army. Sometimes the water was over our heads, most times up to our armpits. Our rate of progress was about 100 yards an hour, and we had to cut down pieces of mangrove to get the stores across. At that stage, we were carrying ammunition, mortars, and the heavy stuff, and I would like to record the sterling job that the mortars chaps did in that show. If there's one bunch of fellows I had respect for, it was the mortars. Eventually, we struck a track which ran along the beach and ultimately into Killerton Village. We came onto that right by a Japanese position. The Japs were sunbaking at the time, and it was a toss-up as to who got the biggest surprise. In the meantime, the battalion was pushing along the coast. Cook's company was set off to find Killerton Village. Until we found it, we couldn't accurately determine where we were. Nothing seemed to make sense as far as our maps and photographs were concerned. Eventually, an aircraft was sent out to help, but by that time, we were on the objective and the thing was plain sailing. End quote. A bit further to the south, the American 163rd Battalion pushed towards the coast while the 2nd 12th took off to the east and rejoined the San Ananda track before pushing on towards the village itself and reaching the outer defences of the village on the 17th. Meanwhile, the 2nd 9th pushed on through Killerton Village, circling around the Japanese position at Y Point 
and leaving them to be dealt with by the second tenth. They also reached the outside of the village on the 17th. Next morning, approaching San Ananda village from the southwest, the second ninth waded through thick swamp and this turned out to be a good plan. The Japanese didn't expect an attack from this direction and so the defences facing the second ninth were not as strong as they were elsewhere. The battalion was able to capture the village by early afternoon. They continued on to San Ananda Point and the Girua River, which fell before nightfall. While the 2nd 9th was pushing on towards the village on the 17th, the 2nd 12th also moved, but coming from the south it met heavier resistance and had a tougher approach and were unable to move forward. But on the 19th, the 2nd 10th Company, which had been attached to the 2nd 12th, pushed across the swamp. Lieutenant Colonel Arnold of the 2nd 12th described this action. The successful attack by A Company of the 2nd 10th Battalion on the left flank was one of the outstanding features of this phase of the campaign. The position held by the Japs was almost entirely surrounded by water more than shoulder deep, except for a small tongue of dry land about 15 yards wide and which was covered by enemy LMG fire. Under cover of a mortar bombardment, this company infiltrated by twos and threes along this tongue, forming up within 25 yards of the enemy. On a given signal, they pushed forward with a bayonet under their own hand grenade barrage. The enemy resistance collapsed and the company advanced 500 yards, killing 150 Japs many of whom were hiding in huts, and captured three large dumps of medical and other stores. As in many cases, enemy wounded engaged our troops and had to be shot. End quote. The 2nd 12th was then able to link up with the 2nd 9th. Further fighting took place over the next two days, but by the 21st of January, only the sick and wounded were left to man the defences and San Ananda was secured. The last remaining pocket of resistance was at Y Point, and the 2nd 10th Battalion was going to attempt to snuff it out. But despite the hopelessness of the position, the Japanese put up a dogged defence which, when combined with the terrible terrain, halted the Australian attack. The strip of land which the Australians would have to cross was only a few metres wide at high tide and they were desperately short of mortar ammunition due to the difficulty of bringing it forward through the swamp. But with San Ananda now clear, the 2nd 9th Battalion was free to push towards White Point from the east. With the 2nd 10th to the west and the 2nd 9th to the east, the Japanese were surrounded, but still refused to surrender. There was only 300 metres separating the two battalions, but it still took two days to reduce the position and link up, finally bringing the bloody beachhead campaign to a conclusion on the 22nd of January 1943. So there we have it, the Battle of Buna, Gona and San Ananda. It was a hard-fought campaign with every inch of ground being desperately fought over. Heavy losses were suffered on both sides, but the terrible reality was that this was only the end of round one. This was going to have to be repeated at places like Ley and Salamoa, Finchhaven, Borneo, Burma and all through the island hopping campaign. It was going to be another two and a half years before the men who fought this round could go home, but only if they managed to survive that long. Hope you enjoyed that episode. If so, feel free to leave a comment on the website at australianmilitaryhistorypodcast.com or on Instagram under amhpodcast or on Facebook. Also, apparently leaving a review on iTunes helps more people to find the podcast, so it would be very much appreciated if you can head over to iTunes and leave a review and a comment so that more people can learn about the amazing history of Australia at Arms. And remember, if there's any aspect of our military history which you would like to hear about, drop me a line at amhp.media at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to the Australian Military History Podcast. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 